Today's scripture lesson is taken from Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. I've titled this message, A Living Church. Paul has been on his major missionary journeys with his companions, and he has been in the city of Ephesus. There had been some disturbance there, as it happened in many places that he went, because of those who opposed the message of the kingdom and Paul's proclamation of it. And so, Acts 20 begins this way. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 16, the New King James Version. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them, and he continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a, young, a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not disturb yourselves or trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up and broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Then he, that is Paul, went to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when we met at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. There ends the reading of God's infallible, inerrant word. <clears throat> Some years ago, <clears throat> my wife and I lived in upstate New York. We, we lived there for 18 years. And one of the things that we came to appreciate in that part of the country was the fall season of the year. We're pretty far removed from that season of the year right now, but at any rate, one of the things that you notice are the beautiful colors of the fall season in that part of the country. It's a, it's a joy and a wonder to behold. But you know, the key to really enjoying that time of year, though, was looking up and taking the time to see the leaves and their colorful display. That is something else that I came to understand after living in New York for almost 20 years. Some of the valuable things about living anywhere 
can soon be taken for granted. I think the same thing applies as we study the books of the Bible, in this case, the book of Acts. There are portions of this book and the story it tells that are prone to neglect. The passage that we have read today, I believe, falls into that category. In this passage, we are given a wonderful glimpse of how the Christian community in the city of Troas was a church that was very much alive, a living church. Troas, in case you don't know, was an important Roman colony on the Aegean seashore, and it's located in the the country today we call Turkey. Now, these verses provide us, I think, with an important set of guidelines that we today would do well to follow. There are three of them. The third one has a number of sub-points. But here is the first of the major three points of the guidelines that I suggest that we need to take into account if we too, if you too, want to be a living church. First of all, there is here genuine love among believers in that church. This is a loving fellowship of people. I want you to listen again to verse 1. I'm going to read it from a different translation this time. When the disturbance was over, Paul sent for the disciples, and after speaking words of encouragement to them, notice that, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Now, in the New King James Version, it says he embraced them. In many other translations, it says that he encouraged them. The difference has to do with the variations in the different Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, and depending on which ones were used for this particular translation, you might get encouraged or you might get embraced. But either way, Paul had called the believers in Ephesus together to say goodbye. And frankly, that must have been a sad occasion for these Ephesians. Paul had been their only pastor for two years, responsible, humanly speaking, of bringing many of them into the covenant family of God. And now he's leaving them. They might not see him again alive in this world. I think the thing that is so instructive for us, in spite that, in spite of what must have been their deep, deep sorrow, there is no hint that these Ephesians were unwilling to let Paul go. They did not cling to him as though he were their exclusive possession. Their love for the Lord was genuine, and their love for Paul was sincere. That's the kind of love that is larger than our selfishness and our arrogance. That's the kind of love that gives way to the greater good and gives way to being obedient to God's law. What a contrast those humble believers in Ephesus are to other Christians, both in their own time and especially in our time. What I mean is that in too many of our churches today, there is disharmony, there is backbiting, hard feelings that stain the whole life and ministry of the church. It has been well said that the word love is one of the most overused words Maybe you could say misunderstood words or misapplied words in our language. So we need to make sure that when we are speaking of loving each other in Christ, we are doing so on Christ's terms, on biblical terms, and not our own. I remember reading a story that the late Dr. Francis Schaeffer told some years ago, how that during World War II, 
the German government had commanded all religious groups to unite so that they could be controlled. In the case of one of the more evangelical denominations, half of them complied with the other and half of them resisted. Those who went along with the order, as you might suppose, had it much easier in life, but those who did not faced severe persecution. Almost every family among the resistors had someone who died in a concentration camp. Now, when the war was over, the the feelings of bitterness ran deep between these two groups, and so there was a lot of tension between them. Finally, they decided that the situation needed to be changed. There needed to be healing. And so leaders from the resistance group and the compliance group got together at a quiet retreat. And for several days, each person spent time in prayer examining his own heart in light of Christ's commands. And then they came together. Now, the man who told Francis Schaeffer this story was a participant in that. And that's what he said. We came together. And so Schaeffer asked the friend who was there, he said, well, what do you mean? What did you do then after you came together? And the man sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, that's it. We were just one. So as they confessed their hostility and their bitterness to God and yielded to his control, the Holy Ghost created a spirit of unity among them. Love filled their hearts and dissolved their hatred. See, when love prevails among believers, friends, especially in times of strong disagreement, it presents to the world an indisputable mark of the true follower of Jesus Christ. So we see that this living church here was a church with a loving fellowship. But then secondly, in verses 2 through 6, we see that it is a supportive or supporting fellowship. Uh, Listen to these verses again. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, he was about to sail to Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. And he lists the names of these people who were with him, Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. And when it says Asia there, it doesn't mean the Far East today. Asia was in terms of the Roman Empire version of Asia, which meant the Middle East, what we call today the Middle East. Verse 5, those men going ahead waited for us, the us meaning Luke who wrote this, and it was Paul's companion, at the city of Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, I'm reading that again because I want to stress to you that compressed into those few short verses, Luke, the author, tells you of the massive amount of military, excuse me, missionary, I guess you could say it was military in one sense, missionary work that Paul did. You may think that's a lot of detail, these names and places, and they did this and they didn't do this. But let me tell you something. We don't know the whole story just from those verses. Because when we read the various letters of Paul, the epistles in the New Testament, we get bits and pieces from his own hand, from his own writing, of other things that were going on at the same time. For example, When Paul returned to Macedonia, he wrote his second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians. And once he got to Greece, he wrote his letter to the church at Rome, the book of Romans. And in the letter to the Romans, he was able to report that he had successfully preached and taught about the kingdom of God in an area today 
that we would know geographically as the modern state of Israel all the way to the modern country of Croatia. Now that is nothing less than astounding that one man could do all that work in that time and place. But you see, that's just the point, my friends. In a sense, Paul did not do it all by himself. Because in reading his other writings, we find that he was attended and helped by many, many other believers. And some of those brothers who helped him are named right here in these verses in Acts 20. And as they travel with Paul, they receive from him by word and example what you might call on-the-job training for their own future ministry in the kingdom of God. And I think this shows us another element of real kingdom fellowship. It is much more than camaraderie or even having strong, sympathetic regards for each other. Now, those are important, and those will certainly be there in a real kingdom fellowship. But to be the kind of supportive fellowship that the Lord intends for his church, there must be learning. There must be growing in maturity and in faith. It is, as Paul would later put it, fighting the good fight of faith together as the people of God. It is living in the reality of being members of one body in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So we've got a loving fellowship. Uh, we've got a supportive fellowship. And then thirdly, this is the last major point. As I said, there, there are certain things I'm going to say about this last point. It is a living fellowship. Listen again to verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, notice that, when the disciples came together to break bread, notice that, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Notice that. So the thing in these verses uh, that go on beyond verse 7 that attracts most tension, and I would say even in this whole part of the chapter, is the, the, about the boy, Eutychus, falling out of the window. Maybe some people might take note that Paul preached until midnight. But you see, it's the more dramatic things that have an attraction for us, isn't it? But there's something far more important that relates specifically to the church's worship on the Lord's day. There are four things here that Luke specifically mentions that were the normal way of Christian worship in that time. And should be so today. First of all, there was the meeting together. See, this is not an option for a follower of Jesus. Meeting together for worship on the Lord's day is the essential core of the spiritual life and health of a follower of Jesus. Yes, family devotions are fine. Having your own individual Bible study time is fine. Small group Bible studies are all well and good. But those things are nowhere in the Bible shown to be mandated requirements enjoined upon believers. The weekly assembly of the covenant community, what we call Sunday worship, is a requirement, however. In Psalm 84, verse 2, we read, The passion of my soul's desire is for the house of Yahweh. Think about that. What if I ask you to fill in the blank, and I just read the first part. The passion of my soul's desire is fill in the blank. How many of us would say, for the house of Yahweh? Is that how we feel on Sunday? As we look to coming into the assembly of God's people, according to the Bible, it should be. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, we tend to think of our relationship as Jesus, to Jesus as an individual rather than a corporate thing. That's one of the unfortunate legacies of our culture. 
And we tend to think of the church as a gathering of individual believers. Rather than a united body of men, women, and children who are bound together as a family. But God's way is the way of covenant. And that necessarily involves more than just you or just me. Secondly, worship is properly done on the first day of the week. A living church meets together and then meets together on the first day of the week. The earliest followers of Jesus, now of course, were Hebrews. They were Israelites. And so for a time, they continued to meet in the synagogues. But as the Jews were less and less tolerant of those who followed Jesus, and it didn't take long for that to happen. We read that here in this very story, that it was the Jews who were stirring up trouble against them. So it became necessary for the followers of Jesus to meet on the first day of the week, the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. That became, in essence, the Christian Sabbath. Now, some of us may remember a time here in Greenville County or wherever you may have grown up, because it was the case in most places where Sundays were special in that regard. Many, many businesses were closed in observance of a day of rest, for example. You know, in some places you had these uh, so-called blue laws. I remember very vividly in Columbia, where I grew up, um, when they began to allow certain stores to open up and, you know, degradation of the Sabbath, if you will. I remember a grocery store not far from where I lived. You could go there on a Sunday and shop, and you could buy a box of pancake mix but you couldn't buy a spatula to flip the pancakes. <laughs> That's the way these things had, had developed, something silly like that. But now, as that indicated the, the history of it, the Sundays are for many people the day they do their grocery shopping or they go out and work in their yards or, or somehow other neglect going to the assembly of the Lord's house. Let's ask, what is it that characterizes our Lord's day? What's Sunday best known for at your house? Thirdly, we have the celebration of the Lord's Supper. A church, with, a church that is alive with biblical worship celebrates the Lord's Supper. That's the meaning of the believers in Troas coming together to break bread. All the evidence that we have in Scripture indicates that the earliest church had the Lord's Supper as we do today every Lord's Day. You know, in many churches, it's only observed four or five times a year. At best, once a month. But the biblical pattern and, and the method of the earliest church was to observe the Lord's table every Sunday. Now, you know, there are some people, even today, when you tell them that's what your church does or that's what every church should be doing, they will recoil in horror and they will say, well, that's what the Catholics and the Anglicans and the Orthodox do. Well, okay, maybe they do. But not everything they do is wrong. You won't find... Let, let me tell you something, friends. If somebody throws this in your face about having weekly communion as some sort of Catholic thing, you won't find in the history of the Christian church a more staunch, courageous, and influential opponent of the erroneous teachings of the Roman Catholic Church than our father in the faith, John Calvin. And yet Calvin insisted that if Reformed churches are to follow the biblical pattern, that every time the Word of God is preached on the Lord's Day, then the Lord's Supper should be received as well at that service. 
And I don't think anybody's foolish enough to accuse John Calvin of being sympathetic to the Roman Catholic Church. And then fourthly, the ministry of the preaching of the word. A, a church that is a living church has worship that includes these elements and then the ministry of the preaching of the word. In verse 7, Paul spoke to the believers and preached and taught them for several hours, well into the wee hours of the morning. That is the pattern. That is the template that all churches of Jesus ought to follow. Not preaching till midnight, but having the proclamation of the word every Lord's Day. The weekly preaching and teaching of the word of God and the weekly receiving of the Lord's Supper. See, those believers, they didn't have skits and dramas and, and video screens. The sermon and the supper were not replaced with puppet shows and magic shows and special music and praise teams. Now, let me be quick, quick to add that, in my opinion at least, it's not to say that there might not be other social occasions of the church where some of those things might be appropriate. I mean, when we leave this room and go have our fellowship meal together, uh, that, I mean, well, okay, in a broad sense, we could say when we sit down together to eat uh, supper, that, I don't mean the Lord's Supper, you know, the, the meal we have afterwards, that is a broad sense an act of worship in some way, but it's not the specific act of the worship of the church on the Lord's Day. And if somebody wanted to get up and play a guitar and sing a song during that, I suppose that's okay. But according to the Bible, such things have no place in the worship of the church on the Lord's Day. And again, to clarify before I close here, that's not to say that when we come together for worship, we all have to dress exactly the same. Or that the minister or the pastor has to wear a three-piece suit. But in Paul's day and in ours, the things that set apart true kingdom churches is the primacy given to the preaching and proclamation of Holy Scripture and the observance of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. To worship the Lord in spirit and in truth means that we must worship His way. And we dare not fall for the swan song of our culture today, as so many have. It is, it is a swan song that would have us substitute paltry human efforts for those means of grace that our Lord has provided for our growth and for our blessing. And praise him that he has. Let us pray.